Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Closing Time Podcast. Last week, Michael and I spent some time talking about term sheets, specifically down rounds, which we're seeing more and more of today. So if you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back in the show and hear all about it. Today, we are going to do part two of term sheets and are going to get into some of the other questions that we had. So Michael, hello again. (laughs) Good to be here with my dear Um, co-host and friend. Good to see you. One of the things that you said last week um, on the show was that we didn't get to get into was looking for clean terms in a term sheet. And it's okay to do a down round as long as it doesn't have dirty terms. Can you please just, yeah, just get into that. What are clean terms? What are dirty terms? It's a great question. And it's unfortunately a topic that I'm having almost daily these days. Uh, As we talked about in the last, in last week's episode, down rounds are definitely uh, here. They're probably here to stay for for a bit more as as our ecosystem continues to work through some of the valuation challenges that uh, that were created in in the twenty one and, and early twenty two period. But yeah, let, let's take a step back. So so what do we mean when we say clean terms versus you know the dirty terms or dirty term sheets? Uh, the the phrase that a lot of investors are using today are structured terms. And what what we mean by that are situations where in order to keep that top line headline valuation number high, investors are saying, "Okay, I'll give that to you. But in exchange, you know, I'm going to want senior a senior liquidation preference. I'm going to want a multiple liquidation preference on top of that. I may want a cumulative dividend structure. I may want a mandatory redemption right. And I might even want a full ratchet anti-dilution protection. So those are some of the key terms that we're starting to see combinations of when investors are willing to say, okay, I can offer you a clean term sheet at a down round valuation, or if the nominal headline valuation is so important to you, founder, I can give something in that zip code, but in exchange, I need some of these other protections. And, and so we, let's dive into some We're of gonna those. We're going to have to, yeah, you're going to have to describe your, let's, let's uh, get into the dictionary here. Should we start by all the liquidation preferences? Yeah, let's start there. So it's important yeah. to remember that a, you know, when you see a typical clean term sheet, you have what's called the one X non-participating preferred security, right? Meaning the investor has to decide for herself whether she's going to take her original investment amount back at a, at an exit event or whether it's better for her economically to convert her preferred into common stock at the exit event and share in her pro rata portion. So if she has a 20% ownership position in the company and her liquidation preference is $5 million, but the company sells for $100 million, well, 20% of $100 million 
is $20 million. And so economically, she's better off converting her preferred into common sharing pro rata, taking 20% of $100 million, than she would be to take her $5 million liquidation preference, in my silly example. So, so the trade-off economically is, do I take my liquidation preference or do I convert to common and share pro rata in the exit proceeds available to the common? Okay, so that's a, the clean structure. So what do we mean by these liquidation preference, non-market liquidation preference terms? Well, so the first is seniority. And so oftentimes in these down round scenarios, the new investors coming in that are leading the, that down round or the existing investors who are leading it want their the money coming in that down round to be senior, meaning it gets paid out before the... Uh, liquidation preference of the more junior securities. So let's let's say this down round was a Series C round, and and let's say that some of the Series A and Series B existing investors didn't participate, and so they got converted to common under uh, a traditional pay-to-play structure. And the, but there were still some Series A and Series B outstanding. Well, when the Series C comes in as part of to lead the down round, they're going to say our investment in the Series C gets paid out before the Series A and Series B get any liquidation preference proceeds. So they want to be senior. And, and so that, that's oftentimes one element that we'll see in, in more structured rounds, though that's not the most punitive, because in some ways, from the founder's perspective, it's all aggregate liquidation preference. It all sits on top of the common. So however it gets divvied up between the A, B, and C. <laughs> they can fight it amongst themselves. That, that is, it's not yeah. an irrational yeah. reaction, but it does set up a really yeah. bad precedent. If the company's able to pull out of the nosedive that's in and, and, and live to fight that long-term day, then they're going to want a, a Peri passu structure. Peri passu meaning everybody gets treated equally. They're all pro rata at the preferred stock level. So the series A, B, and C are all pro rata. But senior liquidation preference, therefore, means in my example, that series C gets paid out before the A and the B. Okay. But let's talk about what's more punitive. Well, a multiple liquidation preference. So typically, as I said earlier, you get a 1x non-participating structure. It's just a straight, you get your invested capital back. In a multiple liquidation preference scenario, the investor gets, by definition, a multiple of it. It might be 1.5x. It might be 2x. It might even be 3x or more. Meaning, if I put that $5 million in that I alluded to earlier, if it's a 2x, then that means I have a $10 million multiple liquidation preference right. And so instead of choosing between getting $5 million back or converting to common, I can get $10 million back versus converting to common. And so you, you want to, uh, as a founder, try to avoid that because it's, it's increasing exponentially that aggregate liquidation preference that sits on top of the common. So, so that's, that's one of the other more structured, dirty terms, if you will, that you see. Yeah. I have to I have to comment. Last week, we talked about, you know, just the time that we're in this moment that we're in, and we are seeing a lot of founders kind of being forced into a down round or, or not at all, right? Like, maybe you just try to bootstrap and, and like buckle down for a while. But are you seeing that this is actually it's a it's a terrible time for angels? I know this, but is it actually a good time for like later stage investors because they kind of can come in and 
enforce these deals that they weren't able to do two or three years ago. But now if they're the only term sheet, they can set up these multiple liquidation preferences. Are you are you like seeing like are there, I don't know, vulture investors that are coming out now? Well, you know, uh, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of new late stage funds that are just coming into the game now. So many of those late stage funds did also get swept up in the frenzy of the last few years. And so they're sitting upside down in a lot of their investments. So it's not as if uh, these crossover and late stage funds have a lot of capital that they want to put to work in this environment because they've got a lot of other investments in their portfolio that they're trying to support. And so, so yes, in theory, if you were uh, a brand new fund that was able to raise new capital in this environment from limited partners, the foundations, universities, and nonprofits and, and, and pension funds that do invest as limited partners in these venture funds, it would be, it could be seen as an auspicious time. Right. Yeah. But it's like Amazon Prime Day but, for you. <laughs> <laughs> but remember, I, I do believe there is, there is a, a, a karma in the universe. And you you got to remember <laughs> what goes around comes around. So uh, you know I know okay. investors want to be mindful. I know they want to they have to protect themselves, and I understand sure. all that. But they also need to understand that they, cycles come and go. I, I I know I know several later stage VCs that have recapped companies that have screwed me over that are very well respected brand names, but they're able to do it. Yeah. So maybe they're not vultures, but they certainly don't care about angels on the cap table. Well, my, my hope is that the founders, and I know this because I work and have the privilege of representing so many of these great companies and these founders do really deeply care about their angels. I can't tell you how many conversations I have on a weekly basis where like, if it weren't for Halley Tech, oh, I wouldn't even be here to be fighting this <laughs> fight today. So, so I hear you. Um, you know, and yeah, there is yeah, a little yeah. bit of business is business. But that being said, like I said in last week's episode, there are some ways that you might be able to protect, especially those really early pre-seed investors, by setting a threshold against which if you're not more shares in that threshold, the pay-to-play penalties don't apply to you. That is that is one tool. It's a small it's a small tool Although, yeah. that you have available. Does to that you. really help though with the with the liquidation preference multiples though it, at an exit? No, it, it does. Really it doesn't solve that. Really. Yeah, it doesn't solve that. Yeah. So founders should just avoid those at all costs. I, well, you know, that's my advice always, Hallie. Like, keep it simple. Take the medicine now. Do yeah. the down round. Have clean terms so that yeah. everybody is aligned. I'm either going to take my liquidation preference back at an exit or I'm going to convert to common and share in the pro rata proceeds that the common are able to uh, enjoy. So, so that's it. The, the other element that we, we, I alluded to earlier that I think we should close out on, on liquidation preference is participation. So what we mean by that is, so, so again, the clean term norm is a 1x non-participating. And what does non-participating mean? Well, that means that the preferred investor, she either, as I said, takes the liquidation preference or converts to common. If it has, by contrast, a participation feature, then the preferred investor gets to have the liquidation preference and eat her cake too, because she also then gets to participate with the common. That's what it means. The ability to both take your liquidation preference and have some element of participation in a pro rata basis. In other words, as it's as if you did convert. So you get your one X or your multiple liquidation off the top, and then you're treated as I converted right after that and share in the balance of the proceeds that the common would otherwise get. 
So there are two flavors of that. There's the full participation where the preferred investor takes his liquidation preference and then converts to common and shares the balance of the proceeds till there's $0 left. Or there's what's called a capped participating feature where the preferred investor gets her liquidation preference and then is treated as if she converted to common, but then gets to participate pro rata up to a cap. And the cap typically is two or three X. So they get their one X if it's just a straight one X off the top, and then they can participate pro rata with the common for an additional one or two X for a total of two or three X. And so a cap obviously is better than a full participation because it at least stems the bleeding at some point. And it may be economically that the investor will say, even with the cap, I'm still better off converting to common upfront and sharing pro rata in that case. Whereas with a full participation right, they will never convert. They will take their liquidation preference and then they will share pro rata in the balance. And so in a full participation scenario, there's never an economic choice. You're going to take both. And so if you are a founder who's stuck choosing you and you have to agree to a participation feature, try to get a two or three X cap to limit it and to to stem it. The lesser of the two evils. You got it, Hallie. Yeah. You got it. You got it. (laughs) Okay. So what about anti-dilution provisions? You mentioned those as dirty. Yeah. You know, so listen, every, every preferred round we see today has some form of anti-dilution protection. So what does that mean? Well, for you listeners that aren't as familiar with it, anti-dilution is what I like to call chump insurance. It's if in fact, an investor invests at X dollars and the next round is at X minus Y dollars, it's a down round. The anti-dilution protection gives some benefit to the investor as as if uh, they would have played at a lower price. And the typical anti-dilution protection is what's called a weighted average. And more specifically, the more common version of it is called broad-based weighted average. And what that does, which by its definition suggests, is it takes an average between what the Series A price, for example, that the investor paid and the lower Series B price that the new investors are paying, and it does a weighted average between those two prices so that it gives the investor the benefit of some protection and that benefit is an okay. adjustment to what's called their conversion price. Yeah. And it's the price okay. at which the preferred would convert into common. And it normally starts one-to-one. Every preferred share would typically convert into one share of common. But with a weighted average protection, it adjusts the conversion price so that every share of preferred converts at something greater than one to one. It might be one to 1.1 shares of common. It might be one share preferred to 1.2. That weighted average will determine what that conversion ratio is by adjusting the conversion price at which the preferred will convert. So from our vantage point, you know, that's typical and you see it almost universally in every round. You might not see it in the most early of seed rounds, but certainly at, at every sort of series A, series B and beyond, you're going to see an anti-dilution protection. Where you start to see more structure is when you have what's called a full ratchet anti-dilution protection. And that, which by its term suggests is not a weighted average. It's literally you ratchet down the conversion price to what the lower 
price is of the round. So take my example again. You have a Series A round of X. Your Series uh, B round is X minus Y. The conversion price will adjust down to that Series B X minus Y price. In other words, it will not weighted average between the two prices. It will simply adjust the Series A conversion price all the way down to the new Series B price. And, And that gives the investor the ultimate downside protection, but it's, it, it, it can be really unfair. What, what if the company only raises a nominal sum and it sells, take an extreme example, $1 of Series B stock at a penny a share? And let's say the Series A was at $1 per share. So you've sold $1 of Series B stock at a penny a share under a full ratchet protection. That $1 conversion price of the Series A goes all the way down to that penny a share price, as opposed to a weighted average where, you know, you're only selling $1 uh, takes into account. Yeah, it yeah. takes it all into account. The, so it, it probably only goes down yeah. to like 95 cents. So the conversion price yeah, would have been like yeah. 95 or 96 or 97 cents. You know, it would be something nominal. Yeah. So I've heard of MFN, Most Favorable Nation Clause. How does this compare to that? Great question. So you don't see MFN clauses typically in preferred stock rounds. You see them usually when uh, issuing a safe uh, or a convertible note. Uh, you don't, you don't, I'm not saying you don't never see them in preferred stock rounds, but the notion is in convertible notes or safes and even in preferred stock priced rounds that if you subsequently issue a new security with better terms, you automatically are contractually obligated as the company to adjust the terms of the security that has that MFN clause benefit. And so where you see it, let, let's take safes and notes. I know we haven't talked about them yet, but, but, but so we can get into that in a moment. But it, in a typical safe, you might have what's called the post-money valuation cap on the safe. And, and for purposes of this argument, let's assume, Hallie, it's a seed investor like yourself, and you agree to a $10 million post-money valuation cap on your safe. If that safe has, which is not atypical, an MFN, a Most Favored Nations Clause in it, and you subsequently issue a new safe later at an $8 million valuation cap, the MFN clause protects you as the original safe investor by requiring contractually that your cap, your post-money cap, be amended from 10 down to the $8 million. And so that's what the MFN clause does. And that's yeah. why you, you so see similar. It. Yeah, it's similar. Yeah. And you almost... Uh, same in spirit. <laughs> it's got that same flavor for sure. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Okay, are there any other dirty terms that founders should be aware of? Yeah. Or should we move no, on? No, no, no. I think there's a couple of others just to keep your, okay. your eye on. Uh, yeah. Cumulative dividends. So in cumulative, cumulative dividends. dividends, you ought to think of them as a coupon. That sounds like, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 okay. it's almost like a, a debt-like, public company-like uh, concept. So typically, in a clean set of terms, uh, your 1x non-participating preferred stock has non-cumulative dividends, meaning only if, and you can imagine how many times in the venture world the if has come to pass, if the board declares a dividend, then you have to declare a similar dividend for the preferred. Uh, And it's only if. 
Whereas with... Why would a startup be giving a dividend? Exactly. I mean, I've seen it, I think in my 23 <laughs> years of practice, I've seen it twice. And okay. that was because we had a company that was highly profitable, had only one round of investment, and there was uh, a desire to get some liquidity to the early employees who all held common stocks. So we did a dividend on the common okay. because we had excess cash to distribute. So, so it... But that's one of the two situations okay. I've seen in my career. Be a very nice problem it's to have. It's a high class problem, no doubt. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> we've only seen it yeah, two times. Unfortunately, for most of startups, uh, you know that that require capital and are working toward, you know, a, a profitable business. There is no excess cash, and any excess cash that does exist goes back into the business <laughs> and not and yeah, not out to the stockholders. Exactly. But in this yeah. case, a cumulative dividend is exactly as it suggests. It is a cumulating right on a quarterly, yearly basis, depending on how it's structured, for the preferred security to grow in value. So typically you might see an eight or or nine or 10% cumulative dividend. So every year the $10 million investment is growing in size. Mm-hmm. Now, the company doesn't have to necessarily pay it out every year. And in fact, there probably aren't cash proceeds as we just said to do that. So instead, what effectively happens, Hallie, is that liquidation preference is growing, 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 growing. And so now, even as you're not raising new capital in the business, the size of the liquidation stack sitting on top of the common is ballooning. And it can be very, very difficult. In fact, there's a famous court case uh, that the one of the Delaware Chancery Court judges refers to it as the gravitational pull of the ever-growing yeah. cumulative dividend. And it becomes, yeah. as, the, as the longer it stays outstanding, the preferred stock stays outstanding, the larger that gravitational pull is, the larger the liquidation preference. So it becomes harder and harder. The bar that the common has to clear in order for its security to be in the money at an exit is larger and larger every day, every month, every year that passes. Which, yeah, which isn't great for founders because they're the ones spending the most time in sweat equity. So the longer it takes you to get to your exit, actually, the less that you're rewarded for that. Spot on, Hallie, spot on. And then that's that's exactly why it can be so punitive. Uh, And then the final final term that I'll throw out there, and there are other flavors of all of these, but the final one I throw out there is what we call a mandatory redemption. So it is not atypical for there to be uh, a, a non-mandatory redemption. I, it's not common, but it's not uh, uh, you know obscure, uh, where the company might have the right at some future time to repurchase the preferred equity that's been issued. Contrast that with a mandatory redemption, where after some period of time, typically five to seven years, the preferred investors have the right to force the company to buy back their preferred equity. It's an exit valve. It's an escape valve for the preferred investors to get out. And so the question is, you know, wh- why is that bad? Well, not surprisingly, the, the only time an investor would trigger that right is when the company's struggling. If the company's doing well, if it's on this, you know, uh, supernova-like trajectory, they're, they're never going to call the right because they want to continue to ride the upside in the increase in the value of the equity. 
But imagine if the company's struggling, if the investors decided, man, this is one of those zombie companies where it's it's not going to get to a big exit. Uh, I, I, I'm not, I don't see a path to get my money out anytime soon. If you had the mandatory redemption, right, you could trigger it, force the company to give you back your money, and then turn around and reinvest that in another opportunity that you thought might yeah. be higher growth. Yeah. And le- leaving the company in a worse situation than they were before. It's exactly right. It's the sideways yeah. situation where they yeah, want to, yeah. they want to call the right. So don't. So, and, and it can get, there are all <laughs> sorts of flavors on it. It can be at, at yeah. higher than the price you paid. It could be at the price you paid. There's all sorts of nuances to it, but suffice it to say that this is a term you want to avoid if you can, because it puts a lot of the future and the financial condition of the company at risk. And so this is why these terms, which on their face may not seem horrible, as you start to think about the implications of what it means for the business, it can be really, really devastating for the common. So that's why I come back to that, the the guidance I've given time and time again, if you have the choice between a clean term sheet with simple (laughs) 1X non-participating preferred terms at a lower valuation, even if it's a down round versus a higher valuation, but with all of these structured and dare I say, dirty term sheet terms, you're always better choosing the former and not the latter. It's, 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 it's just painful. It's, it's though at the same time, like the best way to negotiate is to have multiple term sheets from multiple firms. A lot of founders are really in a situation where um, they're forced, but at least within one investor, you can have the conversation and say, look, I would rather lower this valuation and remove some of these dirty terms than have such a complex agreement. Okay. So last thing, and we're, we probably should have started with this, but I think it's really important to know. So over the years, term sheets, these, these, agreements have gotten very complex, as you just stated, all of these like potential things that are thrown in there, uh, which has led to a lot of confusion because founders don't necessarily understand what they're signing and what they're getting into. And so a decade ago, maybe even less than a decade ago, you know, YC popularized the safe note. And that really replaced what we had before, which was convertible of convertible note. Um, Can you tell us about how this, how you think the transition to safe, everybody knows what a safe is now, how this transition has gone, you know, you're a lawyer, you, you, you benefit off these being very complex and we're moving to a world where perhaps <laughs> we're making them simpler and you're an advocate for being more straightforward. Can we just go into that a little bit more and where you see that going? Yeah. Great question. So, so first and foremost, even as a lawyer, I don't want to be spending time navigating and papering these complex structures. I want to spend time helping my founders think strategically about how do we, yeah you know, continue this incredible trajectory. That that's where the better use of my my time and 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 my 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 consigliere style, you know, uh, uh, support can can be most useful. But but I, I do think over the last you know almost decade, we've seen this transition away from convertible notes and into safes. And I think the reason is, yeah. Hallie, is there's there's two fundamental differences between a safe and a note. And the two are that, and, and, and YC in creating this safe structure, simple agreement for future equity was, was solving for these two issues and maybe a few others, but these two critical points. Number one, uh, a safe does not have an interest rate. Two years ago, when interest rates were near zero, it didn't really matter. Right. I mean, you know, you have to apply what's called the applicable federal rate to any debt instrument. And two years ago, before the Fed went on its ratcheting of of rate hikes over the last 18 months, 
that AFR, that applicable federal rate percentage was 1% or less. So it, mm-hmm. it didn't matter a lot. And so there was a lot of, well, the interest rate is kind of a throwaway. It doesn't really matter. Today, where the AFR is mm-hmm. at 5% and climbing, um, it, it, it does start to be real math. And are real, you seeing real people going back to convertible notes? I haven't seen one. No, but you are know, you seeing them? You know, it's interesting. Great question. I think that there are uh, still a lot of finance professionals who would prefer a convertible note to a safe, all else being equal. Largely, I think, because we all know how to characterize a debt instrument like a, a note. It's a little less yeah. clear. What is a safe? And clearly it's in designed and intended to be an equity instrument. But it's it's just a lot easier. I know if I take a loss on a on a convertible note, I can apply that against a capital gain elsewhere, right? There's there's a symmetry to it. I think the safe, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, I I think it's emerged and it's become clear every day. I think on balance, some finance professionals would say, I'd, if if given the choice, I'd rather do a note because that's something that has been in the vernacular and in the ecosystem structure for decades. The safe, as you noted, is a, a relative. I think it goes back to 2016. Yeah or so. So it's a relatively newish concept. But anyway, so so the other key term besides the interest rate is there's a maturity date. By definition, a note needs a maturity date, whereas a safe has no maturity date. It, 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 it can stay out there until there's a conversion event. I've got a company that's mm-hmm. raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars on a safe many, many years ago and hasn't needed to go out and raise a priced equity round into which the safe would convert. And so the safe investors are sort of in a situation where they're hanging out with this safe with no interest, no maturity date. And in some ways, they're waiting for the company to decide should it go out and raise a preferred equity round? And and this founders yeah. decided, I don't need to. I've, I've taken that safe yeah. capital and I've created a profitable business. And yeah. so it, it raises some interesting questions. But but that's the fundamental yeah. difference between the two. But at the, the two. exit, they, I mean, at the exit, that's a conversion event. That will be. That will be. But uh, yeah. but this this founder has created a- They want to know sooner. Exactly. For, they want some, <laughs> and, and, and to your point earlier, it's like uh, there are alternate yeah. uses for that capital and maybe they want to put it to work elsewhere as well. So it, 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 yeah. it certainly- uh, it certainly raises interesting questions, but uh, but we are seeing safes. I think it is the de facto standard in in most of my certainly in most of my pre seed and seed rounds, and even in bridge rounds where we're raising capital between rounds. Uh, a lot of investors uh, will opt to use the safe structure instead of a note. Yeah. Great. Well, Michael, thank you for letting us pick your brain on term sheets. We have to do this again. I think it's really helpful to contextualize what these agreements actually are, right? Like once you kind of get past the, I'm on board, I love your strategy, I love the mission of this company, I want to invest as an angel, um, or on the founder side, setting up a term sheet for you to take capital, I think kind of taking, double clicking in on what the term sheet actually looks like and all of these um, factors is, is really helpful. So thank you for letting us pick your brain today. Anytime, my dear friend. All right. And thank you, Closing Time listeners. Please check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, where we share episode recaps. Thank you. And that's Closing Time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 